if I didn't record. So uh, I'm going to go over some backstory of 2 Timothy. As some of you all may, may know this. If you don't, um, it's for your benefit and for those listening uh, at home. But uh, I always like to do the context of wherever I start in Scripture because context is so important. And we don't want to rip things out of context. In many ways, if we start with a context, you get such a, a more, uh, more excellent uh, picture. Even some of the emotion of what's happening in their day comes through. We know that Paul wrote this letter in about the year A.D. 67. Um, we know that Paul is isolated in prison. He's aware that he's about to die. Uh, and so because of this, you see a bit more of eagerness in 2 Timothy compared to 1 Timothy. Um, and he's trying to get to Timothy as soon as possible because he sees um, the imprisonment he is dealing with at this point is uh, much more intense He's not having visitors as much. Uh, it's much more in lockdown. And uh, he's, he's, Paul is definitely aware that heresy and factionalism are growing. And he would rightly sense that persecution was being heightened under Nero. And we know that Nero would eventually order to have Paul executed. So he was correct. Uh, in AD 64, Nero... Um, History is unclear, but we're pretty sure that he burned sections of Rome, did a false flag operation, then blamed it on the Christians to instigate persecution. And in 66, the Jewish wars began. So we know that Paul wrote 1 Timothy between 63 and 65. Um, but then we know that we're pretty sure that Paul wrote 2 Timothy in 67. And his scholars would point to Paul's death in May or June of 68. So we know that he would be killed with probably within a year of writing Second Timothy. Um, and yeah, so I always like to look at, of course, who is Timothy as well? Uh, many of you probably already know this, but he's the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Both of his, um, his mother and his grandmothers would become believers in Christ. Um, you see Timothy joining Paul in Acts chapter 16. That's about the year A.D. 50, so it's about 17 years before what we're reading today. So we know at Acts chapter 16, uh, Timothy was a very young man at that time. Um, and as I said, his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, uh, would become believers uh, during that period of Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 16. Timothy served as Paul's representative to several churches. You see that in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, he mentions Timothy. Philippians 2, 19, he mentions him. Uh, we know that uh, Timothy was later a pastor in Ephesus. He mentions that in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. Uh, Timothy is also mentioned as being with Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You see Timothy pop up again and again and again. So we know that Timothy was a trustworthy friend who uh, would carry money collected by the Philippian church to care for Paul in Corinth. So we knew that there's this, Timothy was a faithful uh, supporter, a disciple in every possible way. During the three years Paul was in Ephesus teaching them, Timothy was there too. And when Paul was imprisoned in Rome for two years, Timothy was there taking care of Paul's needs. And by now, what we're going to read today, we know that T Timothy was maybe about 30 years old 
we're not really sure, um, 25, 30-ish, and that they had been serving together for um, over 15 years at this point. And uh, Paul not only thought of Timothy as a faithful friend, but also as a spiritual son. So I can't imagine having a spiritual father as the Apostle Paul, but Timothy had that, that benefit. And what you're looking at in 2 Timothy is maybe the most tender and moving of Paul's epistles or letters. Um, like I said, Paul knew that he was going to die at some point. They knew this time he wasn't probably going to get out of this one. And so even Paul would use the words dying wish in 2 Timothy. And so he wants to encourage him. He is requesting Timothy to come join him during these final days of his imprisonment. And there's three themes of 2 Timothy that come through. The first is encouragement to persevere. Paul encourages Timothy repeatedly that the truth is not just something to believe, but a path you follow, no matter the cost. So you see that coming up repeatedly. The second theme of 2 Timothy is reliance on the authority of Scripture. He exhorts Timothy repeatedly. And to them, of course, Scripture was not New Testament. It was Hebrew Scriptures. So when he says Scripture, he's referring largely to uh, Jewish Scripture. So he's emphasizing the correct handling of that Scripture, its authority, and its importance in developing disciples. So to them, Scripture they would point to a lot would be something like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, these Old Testament passages that clearly point to Christ as the Messiah. Those are very persuasive, and they still are, um, but especially at, to these Jewish believers. Then the third uh, theme of 2 Timothy is warning against false teachers. He uses words like avoid quarrels, senseless controversies, godless chatter, muddy theology, uh, we could use these words today in the United Methodist Church. Again, some things never change. And so um, and then he gives this contrast of false teachers to those holding to sound doctrine or sound theology. Uh, the Lord's servants, you're supposed to avoid pointless quarrels, avoid um, muddy theology. And if you do that, he, Paul would say, you're being like Jesus. Be kind to everyone, promote doctrine, be gentle, be patient. You see these things come up. When you have opponents, don't seek to crush them, but be gentle with them. And try to instruct them instead of fighting. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at 2 Timothy 2.22, we're going to start there. And I'm going to read through 3.9 and jump ahead a little bit. So we're looking at 2 Timothy 2, 22. I'm going to read all this in full, then we'll go through it verse by verse. Flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who warm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil, evil desires. Well, I guess I got to keep going. I can't stop there. <laughs> Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as their faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So we'll look at verse 22, chapter 222, um, to shun youthful desire, passions and pursue righteousness. So we knew that T- Timothy was a young man in age, uh, anywhere from age 23 to 30 years old at this point. Um, as I said earlier, we know that Timothy joined Paul around the year AD 50 in Acts chapter 16. And society at that time determined that men, or you didn't really, they determined that young men were adults soon after they reached puberty. Um, And disciples would be made in their mid-teenage years. So that would make sense that Timothy would be brought on probably as the age of 15 or so in Acts chapter 16. So that would place Timothy roughly 30, 32. We're not really sure. But the narrative of 1 Timothy is likely A.D. 62 to 64. Now, when you look look at 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul would refer back to this thing of being young to avoid being um, the traps of being young. And the term used young there in Greek was typically applied to someone under the age of 29. So... Like many today, many regarded young people as being irresponsible, uh, more violent, more sexually uncontrolled, impetuous. So in the ancient world, many times you didn't get a leadership position until you were about the age 30 or 40. And uh, that's, so it's pretty remarkable that, that Christian disciples would be made at such a, a young or younger age, especially like the, even the disciples were young men. Uh, probably in their their early 20s when they followed Jesus. Um, So you see, uh, shun youthful passions, pursue righteousness. And it's an important word along with those. Paul is sort of saying here, do that, don't live an unholy life. But the way you do that is to align yourself with people that are doing the same thing. Don't uh, you can't you can't do it alone. You know, you're not yourself by yourself. You need other people to help you uh, achieve that goal of shunning youthful passions. Um, one of my favorite quotes when talking to teenagers or kids was always that the age of youth is intended for heroic acts of service. And I think that's true, especially when you're younger. Um, sometimes, uh, well, always, you have more energy. You're bouncier. You know, when I was in college, I could play basketball all night and get up and feel great. And now you wake up and you're sore. And I didn't even do anything the day before. 
Um, so when you're young, there's a pro and a con, it's a double-edged sword, you know. You're more prone to being uh, uh, impetuous. Uh, you don't think things through. And sometimes that's a strength. <laughs> sometimes you're, you're more willing to jump out and jump out on faith, right? And try and walk on water, you know. Um, but Paul is exhorting Timothy here, uh, don't uh, keep that in check with what I've taught you, though. Now, in verse 23, have nothing to do with stupid and senseless quarrels. You know that they are controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Um, few questions are as alluring as, um, did you hear, right? You know, in the South, we'll spiritualize our gossip and say, well, we need to pray for her because here's what I heard, right? Um, Temptation like that can be tempting. And Paul is saying here, avoid senseless, idle chatter because it always leads to division. It always leads to misunderstandings. It always leads to not speaking the truth in love. Um, it leads to selfishness. And they, it does breed quarrels. Temptation always has a short view. It, temptation tricks us into not thinking long view. What could be the outcome of what I'm doing, right? Temptation is always a distraction away from uh, God's best in your life. I I think many times when we are tempted, God, uh, in many ways, the enemy could know that there's something right down the line and he's, he's trying to steer us away from what God could be trying to tell us tomorrow or the next week or what have you. Temptation to do evil is always... Um, in many ways, if you're being tempted, you should be encouraged because it means that God is at work in your life. And, and the enemy does not like that. And he wants to pull you away from that. You even tried it with Jesus, right? He tried to tempt him with all sorts of things before he started his ministry. Um, thankfully, of course, he didn't give in. So uh, he's exhorting Timothy here, remain calm, uh, be kind, don't engage with stuff like that. You will avoid quarrels, almost like a preemptive strike against senseless, stupid uh, controversy. Um, like Jeff says, let's, let's gossip good things. If you're going to gossip, let's make it about positive, encouraging things about other people. Um, and we certainly reap what we sow when, uh, with our words. Again, he goes on. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone. An apt teacher, patient, Correcting opponents with gentleness. Um, I remember when uh, my parents were trying to sell one of their our home in Clemens when I was in, I think I was uh, 18 years old. We we're trying to sell a house that that we were they were going to move to where they are now. And um, ironically, a Methodist preacher was going was trying to buy the home. And I guess because it was a business deal or it was uh, involving a lot of money. Um, this man was incredibly rude. He was just a really, really rude person. My mother was said, he's a preacher to boot, you know? And because they can justify it with sort of a righteous anger or something, right? Um, I remember another time when I was, I was working at Billy Graham and uh, I worked in like the uh, warehouse area and we were wrapping books that were free offers that got mailed out to people. 
And uh, one woman I worked with was just not a very, she just wasn't a very nice person. You would think everybody there would be glowing with halos, but no, they weren't. And um, she was just really rude a lot, always ornery. And there was a workman there hired to sort of fix something. He didn't work there, but he was just brought in for the day to do something. He was up on a ladder fixing something, and he asked her a question. And she just bit his head off, just said, and it really shut him down. And he, he turned around and said, good grief, woman, you work at Billy Graham. You know, <laughs> you, know you really want to not be quarrelsome, but be kindly. Because, you know, Paul's on the same thing to Timothy. Um, you're being held to a standard uh, that's whether you like it or not, people are going to hold you to. And that's, a, that's for your benefit. Um, and... Be kindly, apt teacher, patient, correct opponents with gentle, gentle leadership. It's taken me a long time to learn this lesson, and I'm still learning it. But that when you're a gentle leader, um, Jeff and Ken um, encapsulate this quite well. Uh, what you're doing is that you're allowing space for God to do what God wants to do instead of your emotions grabbing the moment and seizing it and sort of leading in that way out of almost a um, being insecure. When you're a gentle leader, when you gently correct others, um, like Proverbs says, you're heaping coals on the heads of your opponents. Uh, you're spiting them with love. And, and you are loving your opponent as you would want to be loved. You are loving your enemy when you lead others in that way. It's also a form of leadership that's godly. It's not manipulative. It invites the love of God even into stressful um, places of conflict, even into when you're dealing with an opponent or someone you don't like very much. You're inviting the love of God into that moment when you choose to have one of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, and let God do what God wants to do. Um, Easier said than done. Then Paul goes on, God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. It seems that Paul here is um, thinking of false teachers. He's not really laying it out explicitly. He's, uh, but if you, when we go on and we read it, especially to the end of verse 9, it seems like this is who is in his mind. He doesn't name them. We don't know who they are. But he is essentially saying there are leaders in our midst that you are dealing with, that we have dealt with, um, that uh, typify all the things that I'm saying to you. Um, and maybe God will grant that they repent and come to know the truth. And he, he you know, if you look at the previous verse, he talks about cor- correcting opponents with gentleness. I mean... A gentle rebuke with patience can lead opponents to the truth. Um, whereas having a combative and angry leadership style will never change anyone's mind, right? Like you can't tell anybody what, really what to believe. They have to decide it for themselves. And that's what's happening here um, with Paul to Timothy. He's saying, look, if you're, if you're gentle in how you correct your opponents, um, maybe God will lead them to repentance. Maybe God will show them the truth. But if you come at it the other way from the flesh and just wanting to be combative and, and, and argue, 
uh, it probably won't get you the results that you want anyway. So trust God in those moments. So here we come to verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And it's a huge shift in... <clears throat> well, it's sort of a shift because we know that he's referring to uh, maybe some bad teachers and things like that. And he, he shifts it when he talks about this idea of the last days. You must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. Generations have pointed to this passage uh, as a harbinger of the end times. As many of you know, the early church, the writers of the New Testament, they thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. They were pretty convinced of that. Um, and it doesn't mean they got deceived or they got lied to by God. It meant that they were holding literally what Jesus said. They, they told, he told them that he was going to be coming back. And I think every generation of believers have expected for Christ to return. Um, because Jesus exhorts us, hey, have your lamp full of oil. You don't know the day or the hour, right? So there's nothing wrong with expecting that, not out of fear or anxiety. But um, Paul is, is touching on, which we'll get into, he's touching on what Jesus would teach about the end times, which is essentially that it gets a whole lot worse before it gets better. And um, there will be a level of wickedness across the globe that is unseen in human history to that point, whenever that time is. Um, Paul is making a reference. He also makes a reference to end times, 1 Timothy 4, 1. And to Jews like Paul and Timothy, well, you know, Jewish mother, this would evoke Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 2, 2 or Micah 4, 1, that promised the future time of restoration. A lot of language of God assembling his people on the holy mountain, of all the nations streaming to uh, God's presence. So this could be what they're thinking of. Um, <clears throat> end times could refer, it has to refer to the era between um, the first and the second comings of Jesus. So we are essentially living in the end times. Your grandfather lived in the end times, you know. And um, John Wesley taught that the last days effectively began at the time of Christ's death. Essentially a countdown clock kicked on and started running until the day of his return. So I don't have an answer for that. But I can say we're a whole lot closer than we were yesterday. <laughs> Um, and then Paul gives a long list here in verse two of, of what, uh, the hearts of people could, could look like. And in the ancient world, um, people appreciated repetition of sounds when they would write. So you see Paul do this a lot. We would almost call it a run on sentence, <laughs> but Paul would list off vices. James does this. You see it a lot in the new Testament. Um, and so I'll look at verse two through five for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, 
implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. So again, you see this verse 5, you see this touching on Paul criticizing false teachers. He's saying, hey, some of you may have an outward form of godliness, but inside you're denying the power of God, and, and this is the fruit of your life, is all these things that I'm listing off. Um, in the ancient world, thinkers, uh, Christian or otherwise, would warn against people without honor. Even in the Middle East today, we know that honor carries a deep, deep semblance to people. Um, this list describes a perverse, dishonorable person. And in a culture that was obsessed with honor, those who were ungrateful were seen as reprehensible people. Um, and this list is, is essentially, you know, anti-Christ in a very literal way. It's like everything opposite of who Christ is, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, Christ didn't come to serve himself. He came to serve others. Christ wasn't obsessed with money. He didn't even have any money. He didn't even have a place to live. Uh, Christ never boasted in himself. He was not arrogant. Um, he was holy. He was fully human and fully God. He was not a slanderer. He loved the good. He was treacherous to no one. He was never reckless with his time or his energy. He never checked his watch when he was talking to someone. He was always directly focused on where he was supposed to be going. Uh, and so you see this, this list is almost like in contrast to the fruits of the Spirit. You see in Galatians 5.22, this is almost like fruits of the flesh. Uh, this is what not only what uh, Paul's referring to as a false teacher, but this is just what people's lives can look like apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit inside of you, right? That this is human nature at its worst. Without God's help, this is what human beings can look like and do look like uh, to this very day. <clears throat> Paul liked to write about in times at times. Um, I think about this a lot. And... Whatever the time period is, Jesus said it will be like the days of Noah. Um, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus would teach about uh, what, will, what will preempt or come before his second coming. Uh, and before I read that, I, I've, I've wrestled over, it's Matthew 24, 36 uh, through 39. And I bring this up because um, I think it... It's, it's applicable to what Paul is writing here uh, in this list. I'll go ahead and read it, Matthew 24. About the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, nor even the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's, um, 
I've asked friends of mine from seminary to help me with this because it seems that uh, whatever. Hey, y'all. Good to see you. No, this is great. Whenever we can have a kid parade, it's a good day. So, yeah, I've, I've asked friends of mine um, about the days of Noah because you can surmise that whatever was going on in Genesis before the flood, it was a level of wickedness and evil that had um, never been on the face of the earth before. And it was so bad, clearly God had to do something about it. And the implication here is that before the flood, many times I've read eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage. It, it, on one hand, it sounds like Jesus is saying people were just do, living their everyday lives. They were just sort of doing commonplace things. And that's all of a sudden, bam, here comes the flood. But if you think about it, if the days of Noah were as wicked as they say, he's almost saying, hey, the eating and the drinking were even wicked. The marrying and the being given in marriage were tainted by evil and were anti-God. Um, even the common things of life were reprehensible to God. Um, And you see this attack uh, on marriage uh, today, especially back then. Um, Marriage is holy to God. It's God's idea. Um, Satan loves to take things that are holy and desacralize them. He loves to take things that are holy and make them unholy uh, because they're repugnant to him. And whatever is cherished to God, he wants to bring down. So... um, Whatever that time period looks like, it, 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 it could be this, this age. I don't know. Um, I've personally felt in my life that it would happen in my lifetime, just to be perfectly transparent with you. I could be wrong on that. Don't hold me to that. I'm not a wide-eyed, tinfoil hat conspiracy person. Um, but uh, Jesus does tell us to be ready. He does tell us to... Uh, no one knows the hour, but uh, it, it does give a sense of, um, of readiness, I think, for us to be aware of that. And then you look at uh, verse 6. Paul shifts again to um, these apparent leaders, these people that have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. These people that Paul says to Timothy, don't even associate with these people. Um, they are the kind who warm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. So he's talking about religious teachers here. <laughs> These are uh, essentially false prophets. Uh, I, I met a woman uh, in December who came here asking for assistance for Christmas, to help buy presents for Christmas. And uh, I said, well, sh- certainly, we'd be happy to do that. And she said, yeah, I went to another church and asked the preacher if he could help me. And he said that he would, but first I had to go out on a date with him. <laughs> some things never change <laughs> and I said well I'll give you a piece of advice run the other direction and she did and she's actually, she actually wants to join this church now actually um, but uh, it's this, uh, this selfish fleshly manipulative spirit uh, that like you said it's the most dangerous Tight because you're you're flavoring it with religion, and that's maybe some of the worst jerks in the world are religious jerks. 
you know? Um, it's like the, the preacher on TV that it tries to raise money to buy his own, you know, Lear jet, which happens. Um, it's ridiculous. And, you know, this guy says, hey, a carpenter needs a hammer, so I need a jet to do ministry, you know, $18 million plane or whatever. Um, so these, there's people like that. And he, Paul is saying here, these are the kind of people that gain control over women, they're, that these people are loaded down with sins, and they're swayed by all kinds of evil desires, sort of like I listed off to you a few verses ago. Uh, these people are always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's like you, what's that old cliche? The greatest distance is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. You can learn all this stuff. They know about the gospel. They know about Christ as the Messiah. Whoever he's thinking of, it could be a Jewish person more than likely um, that says with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but their actions, their lives show quite the opposite. Um, they, they've learned a lot, but their, their knowledge of the truth is, is, is not there. So he says to Timothy, don't hang out with these people. And then Paul makes a reference um, to the Exodus. And he says, just as Janus and Yambris opposed Moses, those were the Egyptian magicians in Exodus um, that tried to match, right, the, the miracles of God, uh, trying to turn the, the water into blood, trying to show that our Egyptian gods are as powerful as the living God, you know. And he makes the, a comparison, just as these two guys opposed Moses, these teachers I'm referring to, they oppose the truth. These are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, they are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Um, I, I think in our day and age, we could use more men and women that talk like this, um, that are unafraid to speak the truth and call out uh, wickedness, even heresy that Paul's referring to here. I mean, like, there's another word for new ideas in Christian theology, and it's called heresy. <laughs> what we already have, we have received, right? We don't need to add anything to it. We're not smarter than the apostles. We're not smarter than God. I'm not smarter than the writers of the Bible. Um, and just as then and now, there are people out there who uh, seek to deceive and lead astray. You know, I remember when I, uh, when I felt the call to go into ministry when I was 20, God, a long time ago, <laughs> 22. Um, I, I, I had a list of schools. I was living in Asheville. I was living in a cabin with some friends. I had a part-time job at Lifeway Christian Store. store. Made four seventy-five an hour. <laughs> Can barely survive, literally survive on that money. But it was just enough to pay the rent. I was so thankful. Um, and uh, I had a list of schools, and they got narrowed down. Uh, you know, I had like sort of traditional Methodist Duke and and Wesley, and and uh, and I prayed through it, and God was like, no, no, no. Uh, then I arrived on Gordon Conwell in Charlotte. I knew that was it, so that's what happened. And one thing that was impressed on me before uh, I went into that first semester was uh, just like there are bad firemen and bad doctors and bad lawyers and 
etc. Um, there are bad preachers. Not all of them are good. Not all of them teach good things. And that was impressed on me, the heaviness of that. Because if you get it wrong, that's a lot at stake. And, and, and that's something I've always remembered because um, we're talking about e- eternally, cosmically important issues here. And that's why, it's so, that's why Wesley was such, was such a godly man, because he realized that this the scripture that needs to be promoted, not my ideas of it, right? That's where, this is where the power is. Um, people don't come to church to hear what the preacher has to say. They come to church to hear what God has to say, right? That's really why you go, right? You want to you hear from God. And the only way we hear from God is if someone actually teaches you the Bible, not their politics or not their agenda or browbeating you to death or whatever. So it's the same charge that Paul is giving Timothy here, um, Hold and divide the word of God with wisdom and teach it wisely to the people. Uh, and if you do that, uh, you know, Paul would later tell Timothy, you'll receive the crown of life and all that. I mean, that's just God being good to us. But um, yeah, it's in closing. It's important to note that his, his exhortations to Timothy are very much applicable to our lives uh, to have wisdom, discernment against um, people that teach, don't teach the truth. Um, a lot of self-control issues here. With He's exhorting Timothy, uh, don't fight back in the flesh, but uh, essentially trust the Spirit to lead you in moments of altercations or, or difficulty. Um, and don't worry about other people you disagree with because God will sort them out in time. That's not for you. You're not the judge and the jury. Right, only God is, um, and 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 continue on in that way. So, if you think about Paul writing this letter, he's sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a wall. Probably these these prisons were like open sewers, basically, um, just disgusting places. And and yet, Paul, <laughs> you read something like Philippians, which is just full of the word joy. <laughs> you know, it's like. You know, he, it's just it's incredible. Um, but Paul knows his, his time is about at an end. And, uh, and still, he knows that this, my friend Timothy, is essentially my progeny. And I'm going to pass on whatever I can, as long as I can, um, to him. So, friends, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the encouragement of your word and how it is always... Uh, applicable to our daily lives. I thank you for these friends gathered here and uh, the faith present in this room. Um, God, give us discernment in in following the truth, your truth, uh, your way, and and not straying from it, not deviating from it, not allowing the snares of the enemy or the snares of other people to lead us from that direction. God, let us shut off every uh, encumbrance or distraction that wants to uh, get in the way of us knowing you more intimately, of growing in a closeness with you, um, but also being a people who are, I pray, deeply rooted in your word and unshakable in that regard, but also, God, being very flexible in love 
uh, and embrace to the world around us. God, I pray that we would see that the world around us needs a, a church that doesn't acquiesce to their evil, to their wickedness, but um, speaks prophetically in love to the world around us, that we are people just like them. But Lord, we're people that have encountered you and we'll never be the same. So God, um, go with those gathered here, bless them in their journeys and this week to come. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.